right, well, if you've got a Bible this morning, we are in the book of 1 John. 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 7 to start with, so you can find it. We've got kind of three major passages we're going to read through this morning. Um, as we have been in a new series, uh, now that's no longer a new series, but called Rest Assured, Being Certain of Your Salvation. And over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the book of 1 John and various ways in which it addresses the topic of assurance for the believer. How can we know for sure that we've been born again? Because as we said from week one, the Bible gives us testimony. Jesus gives us testimony that it's possible for us to claim we know him, to claim to be believers in him, to even do things in ministry like I'm doing this morning in his name and to not know him and to be lost and to be far from God, to be unconverted. So we need to know what it really means to be a believer. So that's what we've been talking about over the last several weeks and how we talked in that first week about how we are saved through faith in Christ and how that is a work of the Spirit of God. And then we begin looking the next week at various marks in the life of the believer uh, that help give us assurance. One of those in that second week was how we relate to sin is different. We admit our sin and we run from, our, we run from sin and we repent of sin and we don't practice and habitually walk in sin. And then last week we looked at the topic of obedience to God's commands and how believers are people who want to walk in obedience to God's commands and be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And how believers have the promise that one day we will be made like him in, the term, in, in terms of being sinless. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the major themes of 1 John, which is the believer and love. And particularly, um, our love for one another. And so we're going to be talking about that mark in the life of a believer. Love is the defining ethic of the people of God. Throughout the New Testament, it is made very clear in both the Gospels, the Epistles, letters like this from, from John, that the, the defining ethic, the main thing, the main ethic that the people of God are known for is love, and particularly love toward one another. Christians are people who love God, right? Because they've been changed from the inside out and they have faith in Christ. And they, we now love God and we love people and we have a peculiar love for the people of God. So we love all people because what? Jesus tells us that the greatest commandments are, the greatest is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the converted heart longs to do that. And at the same time, the second is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus even said we need to, to love and pray for our enemies. So believers are people that are, are striving to practice that, to love our neighbor, which means anybody we come in contact with, anybody that we, that we walk across. But at the same time, there is a peculiar and a unique love that we have for the body of Christ. Just like I love all of you, but there is a peculiar and unique love I have for my wife and children. Doesn't mean I don't love the rest of you or love you or don't love you as much as I should. It just that's just that's just the way it works, right? And in the same way for the believer, there's a there's a union that happens in Christ that gives us a special bond to the body of Christ. And so you can't help but just have a unique and special love for the people of God. But believers love all people. Jesus said it this way in John 13. John 13 verses 34 and 35 has a lot to do with, I believe, why John stresses the emphasis of love and love for one another so much in the book of 1 John. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
So Jesus himself tells us the defining ethic for his people is their love for one another. The identifying mark of the Christian church is that it's a unique love for one another. So Jesus' church, his people, are to be marked by that. And it's supposed to be so tangible in the people of God that other people recognize it and they, they say, well, they belong to Jesus because we are a radically new community of love. Now, some people say, well, that's not been my experience in the church. I don't feel like that's been my experience, and that's a shame if that's the case because that is absolutely supposed to be the case within the local bodies as we are to be, or as we are a little outpost of the greater body that's represented all over the world. So John addresses the idea of love here in 1 John three main times, three main times where he spends several verses talking about it, and throughout the book, chapters 2, 3, and 4. So I want to walk through each chapter and then just kind of give you some big ideas to kind of pull out of that, okay? Instead of just focusing on one passage. So look with me starting in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. So chapter 2, verses 7 through 11 of 1 John. John says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. Remember, Jesus called it a new commandment. So it's a little play on words here. That I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let's pause there for a second. The big point of this passage is that people in the light, Christian people who know God, believers, do not hate their brother, as John says. Hatred for one another is evidence of spiritual darkness, lostness, death, however you want to say that. So early on in the book, chapter 2 here, John is making the case that you can't hate and be in the light. You can't habitually hate someone and be in the light and know God. It's impossible, John says. Why is he emphasizing this? Why is he making a big deal out of this? The false teachers that were trying to lead these people astray had departed from the church. They had pulled away and left, first of all, true understanding and teaching of who Jesus is. Uh, they had left that behind and kind of started their own thing, kind of almost like a Christianity without Christ, right? You can know God and somehow not need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they were now attacking the church that they had departed from with this false teaching. And this was in no way love. They had left and now began to attack Jesus' bride. They did not love the church. Instead of being marked by love for God's people, they are marked by trying to assassinate God's people, if you will. So he's wanting to really emphasize this, that this marks them as unbelievers. And believers are marked by a unique love for the body. Love for everyone, but especially the body of Christ. So look at chapter 3, verse 11. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. <clears throat> Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And in truth. So he warns here that something unique. He brings up Cain. You don't see Cain brought up too often in the New Testament. Cain is one of the first siblings, right? Cain and Abel, the first two siblings to dawn the earth, right? So you have Adam and Eve. Their first two kids are Cain and Abel. And the first two siblings, the first two brothers, involves a murder. And it's not much of a murder mystery because there's like four people on the earth, I think, at that point. And... <laughs> Cain did it, right? And so, and he says, here's why Cain did it. He did it because his brother's deeds were righteous and his deeds were wicked. In other words, it's the first act of persecution. The Bible says they both went and made an offering to the Lord. It tells you this in the first five chapters of Genesis. And that Abel offered his offering up in faith, the Bible tells us later. Cain did not offer his offering up in faith. And Cain was one who had wicked deeds, and we find here, and Abel's one who had righteous deeds, so he hated his brother, and he hated the fact that God accepted Abel's offering from faith and didn't accept his offering from faith, and so what did he do? The most extreme form of persecution, he martyred him. He killed him. And the hatred here we see in 1 John is linked to murder in verse 15. Why is that? Because hatred is where murder begins. If left unchecked, unrepented of, it can grow into murder. They are of the the same kind of sin. The heart of hatred and the heart of murder are related. The one who habitually hates is no more saved than the one who is a habitual murderer, right? Neither shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then you get to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and then we'll skip down and read verses 16 through 21. John writes, beloved, he loves that word, by the way. He uses it over and over and over again. Beloved, those loved by God, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember we said a week or two ago that that particular word talks about atoning sacrifice, that Jesus bore God's wrath for us. That's what he's calling us. When you see that word, think about the fact that Jesus bore God's wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or completed in us. So, pause for a second. John, again, comes back here to love, and he says, he's telling us the source of love now. Since love is from God, where he says it's from, if you say you've been born of God, right, it makes no sense that you wouldn't have love. You should love one another. You should love others if you've been born from the one who is love, the one who love comes from. He then tells us the love of God has been made manifest or revealed, how? Through Jesus' coming into the world so that we can have life the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you want to know that God loves you, John would tell you, look at Jesus and look at what he did for you. And if you want to know how to love others, look at Jesus. Because as he loved, we ought to love one another. 
Now look at verse 16 of chapter 4. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, and God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, those that know God's love and therefore love have confidence at the day of judgment, he says in this passage. There's no fear in love, he says. God's perfect love has cast out fear. In other words, God's love changes our life, changes our perspective, changes our outlook on eternity, on God, on judgment. And once again, he makes it clear. If you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, John says, you're a liar. If you can't love the image bearer, how can you love the God of the one who they, they bear the image of? He says, it doesn't make sense. All three passages make it clear. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. If you are a born-again believer... You will not hate and you will love. You will not habitually hate. You will habitually love. You will in particularly love other believers. The presence of habitual hate or the absence of love points to the reality of a spiritual condition void of a relationship with God. So to not love is to abide in death, spiritual death. And to have spiritual life is to have a new heart, right? That we know we said last week we to walk in God's commandments as we said last week, but... It's also a heart that loves God, that loves God's people. Now, believers are to love all people. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors and our enemies, as I said earlier, but it's not only Christians, in other words, we're to love, but it's in this particular book, it can be a little confusing. Why is there so much emphasis on that in this particular book? Because of the unique nature of the heresy that's going on there. He needs to address that. But that doesn't mean that we are off the hook for loving your neighbor. All right? So... If you have a neighbor that gets on your nerves or a coworker that you can't stand, you are not off the hook if they don't know Jesus, right? You, we still love them. There are plenty of other places in the Bible that address that. But this particular place is addressing the idea that we are supposed to love, especially and particularly, peculiarly, the people of God. The entire community of faith is to be a community of love. So three big truths out of these passages to help us understand the relationship between love and God's people, okay? Three kind of big truths to hang our hat on this morning. We can't cover all the truths that come out of these texts. Here are three big ones this morning. Number one, love begins with God and is revealed in his gospel. We need to understand, and this helps us understand why believers love like we do. Love begins with God and is revealed in his gospel. He says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, let us love one another for what? Love is from God. If you love, you've been born of God. He goes on to say, whoever does not love does not know God, right? Because God is what? Love. I've seen people turn that around. And they'll, and they'll I, I remember, I've seen it on stickers, on people's folders and in school. And see people writing on stuff. And, and love, it, God is love and love is God. And that's not true at all. Love is not God. No more than any other thing like that is God. God is God. But God is love. He's, it's like God is holy and God is righteous. Righteousness is not God. 
God is righteous. So we have to be careful that we don't get these terms confused. But God is love. It is, it is a key attribute of who he is. You can't accurately describe or understand God without knowing he is love. Every person that you can think of right now that you know personally has key attributes you think of when you think of them. There are certain things that you would just say, I can't describe so-and-so without these words, right? It's just like you need those words to describe that person accurately. And so somebody might pop into your mind and you might think, well, they're smart or they're wise. Or you might think they talk a lot or they don't talk at all. You might think they're always happy or they're always angry. They're generous or they're greedy. They're funny or they're intense and serious. But there's things that come into your mind of how you would describe them. And you can't imagine describing them without those attributes. Well, with God, you cannot accurately describe him without talking about his love, nor his holiness and righteousness. Trying to explain God without talking about his holiness, his love, and all those things is like trying to describe a sunset without using colors. It simply cannot be done accurately. God is love. Humans love because we're made in the image of that God who is love, the one who love comes from. And that's why two, two non-Christian spouses, for instance, can love one another because they're made in God's image and with the capacity to give love. That's just part of the Imago Dei. That's why it's not just believers that can love. That's why sometimes lost people show people that are supposed to be Christians up in loving people because it's just common grace. We're made in the image of God so you can love. But you can't love as well or as fully as we should apart from knowing God and His love. For God is love and love comes from Him. Those, therefore, that know God should be more like Him than those that don't know God. And their love... They should be able to love in a pure sense and their love should be more tangibly evident. We should be, man, believers should show the world up, so to speak, in how we love people. It's proof that we know God. And since love is from God, this means we don't get to decide what love is and what love isn't. Because it's from who? It's from God. <laughs> the first person to ever love anyone or anything is God. So he understands love better than any of us do. It comes from him. The better we understand and know God, the better we can understand and know the very nature of love, what it is and what it isn't. Because love begins with God. You ever had a kid draw you something and come up to you and you're trying to figure out what it is? I live this every day, right? <laughs> Some of you lived it if you're, if you're a child care, you lived it when your kids were growing up and they bring you something and you say, hey, you know, I made this for you, right? Oh, thanks. Is this a boat? No. It's a dragon brushing his teeth, you know, or something. You know, it's like something, not a boat, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, of course it is, right? You don't argue that point. You didn't make it. You didn't create it. If I walked up here this morning and pulled out a laptop and laid it up here and said, now this is a belt sander, you wouldn't go, well, now it's a belt sander. Somebody created the laptop, and we know it's, it's a laptop, and it's a computer, and we don't get to like rename, rename whoever created it and invented it. it, it it's, it's got definition that's it's outside of me. I don't have to redefine it. And love comes from God. It's his thing, right? It emanates from him. And so we don't get to look at our lives and decide if we love or don't love or if we're being loved or not being loved. God has defined what love is. It, it, there's objective truth around this. And in these passages, he shows us what love really looks like and what it doesn't. But we tend to have our own definitions of love. You hear people say, 
That's not loving. That's hateful. And in our culture, it's become very popular. To, to disagree is to hate. Now, sometimes that's because we can't disagree without sounding hateful, and that's sinful too. But many times it's because we, we, we're trying to define love however we want to, but love's not up for debate. Love is not open to interpretation. Love is what God says it is in these passages. It begins with him. And love not only begins with God, he has revealed what it looks like in his gospel. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Because you want to know what love looks like, look at the cross. You want to know what love is, look at Jesus. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Right? And that's the purest, most powerful form of love, the love of God. It was revealed to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, right? The gospel. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice, the wrath bearer for our sins. He said, That's, that defines love for you. That's what love looks like. See, love is a gospel issue. It's in the gospel that the love of God is made known. It shows us what it looks like. It's where his love's put on display. What real love looks like it's put on display. And believers, we know love because we can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we know we're loved. That is what love looks like. God's love has been revealed in the incarnation, in the sinless life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. God sent his son so that we can live. Jesus died for us when we were sinners, when we were deserving of wrath, when we were deserving to be smited, when we were deserving to be cast off and forgotten, when we deserved nothing but hell. God loved us and sent his son to die for us. That's love. That's what real love looks like, that kind of love. We don't get to define what it looks like to love other people in our lives. Love is from God. See, our love is marred by sin. We, we don't love perfectly, none of us. Even believers, we don't love perfectly. We're fallible. We mess up. In fact, before Christ, we didn't love God at all. We didn't know how to love God before Christ. Sin had so warped us. But in the gospel, we see what love is, we experience love, and we know we're loved, and we're changed, right? into people that love God and love others. You can never experience love in this life. You can go your whole life and never experience love from a human individual. Hear the gospel and the Spirit of God move on your heart through that message shared and you will know you are loved even if you've never experienced human love. Because the most pure revelation of it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believers are those they claim to follow Jesus Christ and to know God. Therefore, we have to love them. Our God is where love comes from. And his gospel is what has manifested true love to humanity. What does it say if we can't love one another when we claim to follow the God who invented love, who love comes from, and who has revealed what it looks like in his gospel? To claim to know God and to believe the gospel and to not love others, particularly other believers, is to have a simply put hollow confession, a meaningless confession. So that's the first big idea. Love comes from God and is demonstrating his gospel. Number two, God's love transforms our relationship. God's love transforms our relationship with God. When we experience God's love as revealed in the gospel and we come to know God, our relationship with God is forever transformed. 
those that know we are loved by God and have, we have a different relationship with God than those that don't understand that yet and have experience, haven't experienced that love tangibly through believing the gospel yet. See, when you have experienced God's love in the gospel, when that love grips our heart, you can't help but begin to view God differently than you used to. In fact, your relationship with God has been transformed because you're now at peace with God and you went from being God's enemy to being God's family, <laughs> his child, his son or daughter. Look at how John says it in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. I love this passage. So he says, We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in him abides in God, and God abides in him. Now look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See the transformational nature that God's love has on our relationship with God and on judgment, how we view standing before him. See, believers who know they're loved by God and that they love God from a changed heart have confidence that on judgment day, we're going to experience grace, not wrath. Everyone will one day stand before God on judgment day. And instinctively, deep down, I think we all kind of know this. Eternity is in our heart. Ecclesiastes tells us. There's a sense in which we, we understand something about that even in a flawed way. And, and so people fear death and they, and they fear, they don't know why. And it's because they don't not really sure what's out there. But what if there is a holy God out there? Everyone's going to be judged. And believers know our sin was judged in Jesus. That gives us confidence on the day of judgment. As he is, so also are we. As Christ loves, so do we. Believers have been transformed by the love of Jesus. And so now we have confidence on judgment day as we see this played out in our life. And we see that we love more and more day by day, more like Christ does. Although very imperfectly. Very imperfectly. Notice he says there's no fear in love. What happens is God's perfect love, the love shown in the gospel poured in our heart. And we believe the gospel drives out fear. Drives out fear from our heart. Before Christ, we fear death because we fear punishment. But in Christ, we know that we are not going to be punished, right? And so there's no reason to fear. No reason to fear judgment. Our relationship with God is different. We're, we're children of God. So, so we long to be in his presence rather than fear being in his presence. So whenever we operate in fear instead of faith, that is a gospel issue. That is a that is a belief issue. That is at the very heart of what it means to trust and walk with God when we choose to walk in fear instead of faith. You know, the most common command in all of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is do not fear. There's something to that. There's something to the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was hide from God in fear. As we trust in the gospel, we should be able to now live boldly and fearlessly. We, we have no reason to fear death and no reason to fear judgment. So what in the world, tell me, are we supposed to fear? That's easier said than done, I know, because we're, we're human and we're flawed. But if we're loved by God, what should we fear? If we're children of God, what do we fear? When we operate in fear, in that moment, we are not allowing our minds to be formed by the gospel. We are resisting. We are resisting sanctification, if you will, and growing in Christ's likeness. Many people, by their fear of death and judgment, 
showed themselves to have never really believed the gospel at all. Fear has to do with punishment. It is the only those whose sins are going to be punished that need fear. If you have a deep, innate fear of standing before God and going to hell, you may need to be saved. The gospel is meant to drive that fear away as you believe. That's what John's getting at. It's plain and simple. Now, am I saying that a believer can never struggle with that fear? No, not at all. They can struggle with understanding and knowing for surely if Christ's payment has been applied to their account. I get all that. But I'm talking about, man, if you walk in just a habitual, naggy fear of standing before God and what that's going to mean, it could be it's because you've never sought refuge in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and know that you are safe because you are saved and that you are loved and that you will never experience wrath because Jesus bore it for you. I remember when I was a kid, I don't, know, I don't think they do it this way anymore, but when I was a kid, they used to send the port cards home with the child. They finally, after like 50 years of that, they learned that you can't trust kids, right? And I remember people like signing their parents' name, you know, or trying to pull that off. And so they'd give you that card, and they'd put it in the little envelope and seal it. And depending on what was on, in, on that card, depended on pretty much how the rest of my day went, right? And how I felt, right? So if there was a grade on that card, and every now and then there was, that shouldn't have been on there, and I knew I was going to get in trouble for it, especially if it was a conduct grade, right? Back in the day when they gave those like in elementary school and and it wasn't an S for satisfactory, but it was a U for unsatisfactory. All of a sudden, that backpack that carried that card got really heavy. Right? And I just remember you'd always think, now, when's the best time to reveal this? Because I wasn't the kid that was just going to try to... First of all, my handwriting was horrible. Although my, I got that from my dad, so I probably could have put it on. But I just wasn't that kid. So when are you going to reveal this? Right? I, you had to plan the moment. Right? And, and, don't want to do it right when they get home from work because maybe they've had a bad day. You have to plan this stuff out, right? And if it's the weekend, you kind of got the weekend to play with it unless your parents have been talking to other parents. So you had to scope all this out. Now, if there were good things on that card, all good things, the first thing you did as soon as they came through the door was you presented it with them, right? And if there was any kind of reward-based system going on, you were, make, you, were, you were making your case. So it was all dependent on what was on the card on what, how you approached your parents. And in the same way, there's something instinctively when we're bearing our sin load and it has not been removed by faith in Christ, when we, when we don't have that freedom of knowing we are forgiven, man, there, there is a guilt and there is a fear of punishment that comes with thinking of approaching God and standing before Him. But believers do not have to live in fear. They don't have to dread meeting God. Those that remain in unbelief, that remain in sin, those are the ones that can and should be bogged down by fear. That's meant to point you to Christ. Only God's love in Jesus can drive that fear away. So listen, wherever it is in our life that we are operating in fear instead of faith, believer, that is not of God. The fear in your life, wherever it is, I'm talking about unhealthy fear, is not of God. Fear of man is not of God. Fear of failure is not of God. I'm not talking about common sense stuff like don't touch the stove when it's hot. That's just wisdom. But you know what I'm talking about from a human perspective when, we, when you're just kind of paralyzed with, with fear. What's going to happen if? What's going to happen when? And we begin to make all our decisions rooted in a, in a fear of something. And I'm just telling you, that is not of God. That is of your flesh or it is of Satan, but it is not of God. 
You can take heart this morning that the gospel is meant to drive fear out of your life. Why do you think they live such crazy, almost reckless, wild, abandoning looking lives in the book of Acts? Right? Stone me, kill me, whip me, whatever. I'm preaching the gospel, right? There's like, there's like no fear. Before, fear. Spirit comes, no fear. The gospel, the spirit, as he applies that to our hearts and lives, it's meant to drive fear out of our lives. The love of God has freed believers from fear. We have a relationship with God built on his love toward us, his grace poured out on us in Jesus, and we are no longer slaves to fear. We sing about that. We are free to go all in loving God with all our hearts and loving others. So listen, when we're bound up in fear, you can't take the risk love requires when you're a slave to fear. Because love, real love, can be risky. And when you're afraid to lose your life, how will you ever give it daily for others? So God's love for us, when we fully understand it, and as we grow in that, it begins to drive, it changes our relationship with God, drives out fear, but it should also, number three, transform our relationship with one another. God's love transforms our relationship with one another. These three passages we read at the beginning are very clear. A proof of true conversion is a distinct and real love for other believers in Jesus. He says in verses 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Right, if you don't love your brother you, whom you, you can't see, you don't love God whom you cannot see and have not seen. And this commandment we have from him, he says in verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if you love God, you have to love your brother. And if you don't love your brother, it proves you don't love God. That's what, that's just, it's very cut and dry with John. See, God's love toward us causes us to extend love towards one another. We love, it says, because he first loved us. We don't love because we're just good people. We love because he loved us. It's our experience of God's love as revealed in the gospel that gives us the capacity even to love one another. If we can't love our brother whom we can see, we can't really love God because we haven't experienced his love. Because listen, we love because he first loved us. If we understand that he's loved us, we will love. It's a cause and effect relationship. Verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, it's when we love one another, we see God's love perfected or completed in us is what that means. See, the goal of God's love isn't completed into our lives until we obey his word and love one another. God doesn't love us just so we feel warm and fuzzy and so we sleep good at night. It's supposed to be a wellspring that causes us to walk in his commands and to love one another. It's supposed to affect us. So you might ask, how do you go about loving other Christians? Does that mean that you just like, if we have this unique and peculiar love for other believers, that's mean like I eat at Chick-fil-A a lot? If that's, the, if that's the scorecard, right, I'm there. <laughs> Call me saved, Okay. Is it that we, is that we, we, we shop, do all our shopping for home goods at Hobby Lobby and everybody has at least one Lifeway print in their living room? Right? Is it, is it that we, that we like really embrace Christian subculture? Is that what it means to love one another? Does it mean that when we, when we see a, 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 a protest for some whatever social issue that we just get a bigger sign? 
than, ever, than the people that are protesting what we disagree with or is it against our moral choice? Why, what does it mean to, to show that we, have, we love and support one another? What does it mean to love other believers? See, love for other Christians, this is what it, why it's so important to be a part of a local church. Because when he says love one another, he's, he's thinking beyond just general terms. See, believers should love all people and all believers in Christ in general, but to practice this tangible love that's visible to outsiders that both Jesus and John speak of, you really need to be in a local church. Every Christian needs a church home to practice loving others in. Amen. See, it's hard to believe one loves God's people if one has no desire to be a part of a local church. No desire to attend, no desire to be a part of. And I know that's hard to hear. It's hard to say because we all know people who we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't knock them out and get them here. They'd wake up on the way and roll out of the car. But they say they know God. But now listen, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. I think we've been pretty clear over that for four weeks. Being a Christian is not about joining a church or going to church. However, to claim we have love for Jesus' people and to never gather with them in worship, to serve alongside them, to love on them, and to be loved by them makes our claim seem really hollow. See, in the Bible, it was literally unheard of. Churchless Christians were unheard of. It's an epidemic in our culture for various reasons, one of which are many people who are unconverted who claim to know Jesus. And only about a third of people who claim to be evangelical Christians are in church this morning somewhere in this country. The latest statistic I saw. Various reasons why that might be. One of them might be that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are not. In the Bible, it was unheard of. If someone habitually, if someone persistently refuses to at all have anything to do with the local church, all I'm saying is there is a reason to be concerned for their soul, and we need to know that because we need to know how to pray for them and how to love them and how to care for them. They might need to move from one side of your prayer list to another and how you pray for them. See, John's not really talking about church membership here because it's implicit. It's foundational. Because, see, when they heard this letter read as it circulated around the region, they would have heard it in their church alongside other people. If you weren't a part of the local church in that day, you just didn't get this stuff. You're like, hey, did you hear? We're supposed to do this now. Do what? No, I didn't hear. Why didn't you hear? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't go to church. I mean, it was just unheard of. You, you, just, you didn't get the scriptures if you didn't go to church as they were cycling around. You didn't get the letters. It was just understood. I heard someone say, if you try to love Jesus without loving the church, it's like trying to love a head without a body. Right? Christ is the head, we are the body. The point is this, it's perverted, it's, it's wrong, it's twisted, it's, it's, it's not right. We, it's, there's something in, this, in the illustration that helps us to know that that's not what, what pure love for Christ is supposed to look like. If we really love Christ, we're supposed to love and embrace the body of Christ, his bride. People that love Jesus love his people. But love is more than being involved in a local church. But it is not less than that. Loving your brother is practical. It's a verb. It involves doing. It involves how we treat people. Loving my brother in Christ means I should not want to slander, gossip, or defraud them, or anyone else for that matter, whether they're in Christ or not. Love for my brother should invoke generosity and compassion and kindness towards them. And by the way, the benefit of the stinking doubt. In verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3, he tells us what it practically looks like to love one another. 
If one has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how's God's love about him? He says, Let, let's not work, talk about it. Let's, it's supposed to be deed and truth. He says up in verse 16, we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought, we have a responsibility to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, Christ laid down his life for us and that's how we know what love is and it shows us what love looks like. So true Christian love, just very practically, is humble. Christ had to humble himself. He, it says, the Philippians says he humbled himself and he came and he, he took the form of a man, the God-man, and lived sinlessly and died for us in an act of humility. And you can't lay down your life without humility. Christian love is, is humble. And the gospel humbles us so that we can humbly love others and serve others. It's self-sacrificial. Christ-like love requires laying down your life. He tells us that. We may never do it literally, but figuratively speaking, he's saying this is kind of what it looks like. It, it means to, to give some stuff up. It means sometimes it hurts, sometimes it's painful, and sometimes it means not getting what you want. And it's self-sacrificial, and it's generous. He gave his life for us. That's the most he could give. Love means we will be generous towards the church with our time, with our talents, with our resources. See, God, John gives clear illustration. If you have means and you see a brother in need and you refuse to help, you're closing your heart. How can God's love be in you? If, you, if it's right there in front of you and you just don't care, love for others is not a feeling, John is telling us. It's an action. It's a verb. It's about doing good towards them humbly, self-sacrificially and generously. It's about deed and truth. So do you love? Do you have a humble, and are you pursuing a humble, self-sacrificial, generous love towards others, particularly towards Jesus' people? This means we don't get to pick and choose who we love. We are to love those like us. We are to love those not like us. All ages and all races and all backgrounds. We don't get to pick who to love in the room and out of the room this morning. We don't get a star by our name in heaven because we love someone that's not like us. That's, that's par for the course, to use golfing terminology. It's expected. However, if we don't love, we better fear because we have, no reason, we have reason to doubt if we've been converted. That's his point. This is like par for the course, lowest expectation. It's just supposed to be there. See, genuine believers, we can be assured... Because God's, love has, because God's love has transformed our hearts so that we love God and we love others, especially the church. And this love we have originates in God, as we said earlier, and is demonstrated in the gospel we believe. That's why it's this wellspring of assurance. And it's why it marks people out who do not have this is outside the gospel, outside of, outside of faith. So what do we do with this? If you're a Christian this morning, what do you do with this? Let me give you some simple application. Strive to better understand God's love for you in Christ. God's love drives out fear. God's love enables us to love others. Every believer needs to be striving to more and more understand God's love for us in Jesus because as we do that, the more we understand that, the more our heart grasps that, the freer we will be and the more we will love. 
And if you don't know Christ this morning, know this. God loves you and has demonstrated it in the death of His Son on the cross for sinners like you. Come to Jesus this morning and you can experience real love. But also, we need to seek to love others in tangible ways. That's another practical thing we can do. How can you tangibly love someone else today? Who in your life or in this room or in your neighborhood needs to tangibly experience love? Love is not lazy. It is not complacent. It is an active thing. And also, and lastly, refuse to embrace attitudes and practices that betray love, that betray the love ethic, our love ethic as a church. Believers are known by our love for one another, yet many believers are more known for their snark, their animosity, their sarcasm, than their love. We're going to have to choose what we're going to be known for. We can be known for how well we spot the ball and we think we're right, or we can be known for what Jesus said we're supposed to be known for. So we have to beware of a divisive spirit, personal agendas, protecting our tribe. Those things, are, that's when we're picking and choosing who to love. That's not what God's called us to do. So let me ask you this morning. First of all, do you need to be born from above? Do you need to be saved? Have you ever trusted Christ? God loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you and to be raised from the dead. And if you'll put your, turn from your sin and put your faith in him, you can be saved today. You can experience God's love tangibly in your heart today. And for every one of us believers in this room, we need to be asking, how can I better practice love? Because we all fall short in these. We all struggle with these. We all fear things we shouldn't fear sometimes. And we all struggle in ways to, to tangibly love others. And we've all battled that because we're not perfect yet. How can you better practice and do? How can we better love? Let's pray.